Uh, I'm really excited today to uh, welcome my friend uh, Gary Holloway and friend of, go ahead and come on up here, Gary is a friend of Aspen Grove, he and his wife Deb. So uh, I am here today, but I'm on the bench because I asked uh, Gary to, uh, to teach for me. Uh, Gary is the Grand Poobah Executive Director of uh, World Convention, which is, I guess, headquartered here. Mm-hmm. The whole world headquarters right here. is yeah, yeah here in Nashville. And uh, Gary is the director, uh, executive director of World Convention, which um, I would tell you the purpose of World Convention is to connect churches mm-hmm. on, a, on a global level. Uh, you hear us say all the time that, that sometimes the competition and animosity that exists among churches is really, we use a heavy word for it, we call it ungodly. <laughs> and uh, really what World Convention does is uh, their purpose is to make connections with other churches, to celebrate the church and the kingdom, to unite the church around the world. And so I asked, uh, uh, we've kind of been wrapping up our Romans teaching series, but Romans 14 talks so much about this idea of the purpose of the church and the cause of unity and harmony among churches that I, I could not resist inviting Gary to come and speak for me today. So we guys welcome Gary Holloway as he uh, leads our time together. Uh, it's always a joy to be back at Aspen Grove for Deb and for me. Uh, this church means a lot to me. Uh, for a while, I was one of many kind of interim ministers here. Some of you remember those olden days before Adam, remember? <laughs> so it's great to be back. Uh, I want to start with John and then get to Romans, if you let me do that. Uh, on the night in which Jesus faced his death for us, he had a prayer, John 17. Prayed for many things, but what was on the heart of our Savior on the night in which he was facing the cross, one thing that was on his heart was he prayed to his Father, and he prayed that all who believe in him might be one. This great prayer for Christian unity has affected Christians throughout the years because we pray with Jesus, right, in Jesus' name. We pray like Jesus, and so I I hope, I believe, that, that we pray this same prayer that all who believe in Jesus might be one, so that the world might believe in Jesus and know the love of God. Go read that prayer in John 17. Uh, But this passage also was important a little over 200 years ago for some folks who came here to America in that they saw a world in which Christians tended to be in competition with each other, and they said, you know, we have a chance here by the grace of God to invite all who believe to be one. And so Christian churches really grew out of a movement. Historians tend to call it the Stone Campbell movement or the Restoration movement that focused on this passage, this prayer of Jesus, that all might be one. They saw that as their guiding star of life. They saw that as their life work to invite all who believe in Jesus to express their unity so that the world may know that good news of the love of God. And that's why I am so blessed to be part of this ministry known as World Convention. It's been around since 1930. Uh, Its purpose is, first of all, to promote connection and unity in those, what, Stone Campbell Restoration Movement churches. Some call themselves Disciples of Christ, some Christian churches, some Churches of Christ. We're found in 199 countries. If you want to look at that list, look at our website, worldconvention.org, and you can find out a little bit about where we are and what we do in those countries, our churches. 
But World Convention is also the one place that gives us a seat at the table with other Christian groups of all kinds, all who believe in Jesus, so that we may promote, express that unity and call all to believe in our Savior. I'm telling some of you something you already know. Because Aspen Grove has been involved with World Convention for a long, long time, about 20 years or so, maybe even longer. As a matter of fact, World Convention at one point was headquartered with you at First Christian Church. Many of you remember my predecessors, Lindsay and Lorraine Jacobs, Jeff Weston, Rosemary Weston. Uh, and I would not have this calling if it weren't for Clint Holloway. Clint and I are related in the Lord, not so much somewhere back there maybe in, in family. But uh, he was part of World Convention before me, worked for World Convention. And I'm carrying on the work that he and others have done before me. So I want to talk a little bit about Christian unity. Now, in my work with World Convention, I go to lots of churches all over the world. I talk about this idea that Jesus prayed for, that all who believe in him might be one. And when I do that, I get different reactions from good Christian people. And one reaction I sometimes get from good Christian people is something like this. I, Christian unity, that's wonderful. It's marvelous. It's great. I want Christian unity, but not with them. <laughs> not with them. Now, who are them? It depends on who you are, I guess. You say, well, we have Christian unity, meaning... We want unity with those people who are right, like us. But you know who they are? You know what they believe? You know how strange they are? That's one reaction I sometimes get. Another reaction I sometimes get from good Christian people is something like this. Christian unity. Gary, that's what you're working on? Yeah, he says, how's that working for you? How you doing with that? And the implication is, well, okay, if you want to kind of tilt at that windmill and have that impossible dream, fine. I suggest to you those are kind of misconceptions of what Christian unity is all about. So I'm finally getting back to Romans 14. A passage again that you know you looked at not too long ago. A passage that, that I think, and it's hard to say what's the most important passage in Romans. We'd all pick one. This may be the most important passage in Romans. It's what Paul seems to be leading up to with the rest of Romans. And in Romans 14, I think the clear teaching of the Apostle Paul, the clear teaching of Scripture is unity is not based on agreement. You want to hear that one again? Unity is not based on agreement. Let's say it together. Ready? Unity is not based on agreement. So we agree on that. That's good. Now, what do I mean by that? What does Paul mean by that? Well, Paul says, you know, here in the church in Rome, we have some disagreements among us. Now, again, if you think of all of world Christianity, all the different denominations, you have to admit, yeah, we have some disagreements. And sometimes those disagreements are what we consider to be over pretty important things. So how can we have unity when we have disagreement? Now, that's true of the whole world, but it's also true in any congregation. So there are people sitting beside you now that you disagree with on certain parts of the Bible. Is that true? Y'all ever talk to each other? And there are some who are just plain wrong. Don't look at them now, but you know who they are. What do you do about that? Can, can we be one, even as a congregation, if we have those disagreements? And Paul says, well, here in Rome, we have some issues. We have some things we disagree on. I want to talk about the two he talks about. See if they bother you. 
when he says, there's some among you who think it's all right to eat meat, and there's some among you who say it's not right to eat meat. Now, my guess is this is not a big issue here. I've seen some of you eat. <laughs> but it's a big issue for them. It was even a religious issue. Now, most folks I know who don't eat meat do it for health reasons. Every once in a while, I'll run across someone who at least thinks they have religious reasons for not eating meat. So, so years ago, I taught at Lipscomb, and, and I had a student, and, and he said, uh, you know, I don't eat meat. And I said, oh, yeah, is that right? For health reasons? He says, no, I don't eat meat because the Bible says and in the Garden of Eden, they did not eat meat. And I said, oh, so you're a Christian nudist, too. <laughs> and he thought about that a little bit and decided he might want to pick another verse to be against eating meat not sure what's going on in Romans our guess is it has something to do with where the meat came from it was kind of sacrificed to an idol before you bought the meat and took it home to eat and and they really had some strong disagreement about that but that doesn't really bother any of us now right not an issue here if it is we'll talk later but I don't think it is second issue Romans 14 he says certain people keep special holy days and other Christians say, well, every day is a holy day. Every day is kind of the same. Now, we're not sure exactly what's going on there, what the exact disagreement was, but there's a strong disagreement. Now, do we fight over that here? No, no riots at Easter because some want Easter and some don't. That hadn't happened here. Okay. Now, what I'm afraid of is we read Romans 14, we read about those two issues, and we say, we got those. We're all right on those. We don't fight over those. So what I want you to think about is what are some issues you think are important? If Christian unity is not based on agreement, there's always someone who will say, yeah, but we've got to agree on certain things. All right, the problem is we can't agree on what those things are. Are you with me? We can't even agree on the list of what is necessary for agreement. So you say, what about those people? What about them? Now, surely we have to all agree on baptism. Uh, surely we all have to agree on how worship looks. Surely we all have to agree on kind of who's the leaders of the church. And none of those things are unimportant. But I feel certain if Paul were here, he'd say, all right, just put that on the same list as the eating meat and the keeping the days. It really comes down to what? Understanding the Bible. Now, I'm just going to testify here. I don't know every Christian in the world, but I've been around a lot of Christians lately from a lot of different groups and a lot of different countries. It's kind of what I do. And I would just tell you that every Christian I know believes in the Bible. You want to hear that again? Every Christian I know believes in the Bible. Catholics, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Seventh-day Adventists, Quakers. They all say the Bible is our authority. We believe the Bible. But you know what? They're wrong on certain things. Why? Because they're not right like us. I'm glad to hear some laughter. Now, in one sense, we all think we're right now because it's really weird to say, now, here's what I believe, but I'm wrong. That's kind of weird, isn't it? But some of us have lived long enough to where I used to think I was right and found out I wasn't right. And we've lived long enough to realize that Christian unity, the relationship we have, is not really based on agreement. Now, if I hadn't convinced you, I'm finally going to get to Romans. And Paul says, what do you do? Whether you're talking about worldwide or whether you're talking about one 
congregation, what do you do with those people who are just wrong? And you've talked to them, and you've discussed it, and they're still wrong. Now, before I get to Romans, I'll tell you what we sometimes do, which I think is wrong. Is sometimes we go from, okay, Billy Bob, Sally Francis, they're wrong on this, to, well, if they're wrong, they ought to be able to see it. It's clear to me and ought to be clear to everyone, and so they just don't believe the Bible. And we go from they're wrong to they don't believe the Bible to they're not really Christian. And what does Paul say? Here's what he says. First from chapter 14, verse 1, Romans. He says, accept them. Accept other believers who are weak in faith. Don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Accept them. Don't argue with them. But they're wrong. Of course they're wrong. Don't argue with them. And he uses this term in, in Romans, the weak and the strong. And he used it in the exact opposite way of what I grew up with, which means one of us is wrong, and I think it's me, not Paul. Uh, I was kind of grew up to where the strong Christian was the one who was pretty much against everything. You're a really devout Christian if you were just against everything. If kind of almost everything around there was a sin and you were against it. And the weak Christians were the ones who were a bit too wide, right? A bit too, oh, shall we use the word, kids are gone, liberal. And Paul says, it's actually the other way around. The strong Christian, Paul says, is the one who thinks a certain practice is right. He, they think it's okay. They're strong in their faith. They know that what makes them right with God is not being right on issues. It's faith in God. And the weak Christian is one who's just not sure. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe I shouldn't do it. So Paul says, all right, if you have weak Christians who are not sure about certain things, what do you do? He says, you accept them. You don't argue with them. I grew up in a church that brought me to faith, a church I appreciate, a church, a congregation that doesn't exist anymore because they eventually kind of argued themselves out of existence. Because their whole view of being right with God was being right on everything. And it didn't take much to be a liberal in that church. You just had to be wrong on something. And that breaks my heart because I can't go back to my home church anymore. And I, don't misunderstand. I appreciate them. that They brought me to faith. They taught me about the Lord Jesus. But somehow they missed the Lord Jesus. Accept one another. Don't argue. What else does he say? He says, what about those wrong people? What do you do? He says, don't judge them. So verse 4, who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. Don't judge them. Don't condemn them. You can't say unity is great, but not with them. Because he said only should you accept them, but you don't condemn them. You don't judge them. Why? Because the Lord is the judge. And he goes on to say, I think this is important, what, with the Lord's help, they will stand. So not only do you not judge them, but you don't say, I won't judge them, but you know, the Lord's going to get them. <laughs> the Lord will judge them. It says, no, the Lord is a gracious judge, and what you want is for the Lord to, to make them stand, 
to forgive their wrongness because we want the Lord, and he has, to forgive our stand and our wrongness. What do you do with those wrong people? Accept them. Don't judge them. And then he turns primarily to those who are strong. And he says, don't harm others with your freedom. Now, let's come back. He's not saying freedom's a bad thing. Freedom's a good thing. It's the Paul who in Romans and Galatians talks so much about freedom in Christ. Christ has come not to put us in bondage, but to set us free. Free to do lots of things and free to do some things that some Christians think are wrong. They're not wrong, but they think they are. So what do you do if you know what you're doing is right, but other people think it's wrong? Here's what he says. Verse 15. If another believer is distressed by what you eat, you're not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Don't get too hung up in the eating. So we go on to verse 21. He mentions something else that, that we might have some disagreement on. Verse 21, he says, It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they've decided is right. Now, uh, these verses have been misunderstood. Older translations say, don't do this if it offends your brother or sister. And I've known some churches where uh, the whole church was built on being offended. <laughs> really. So that anything that anybody wanted to do, there was always someone who said, that just offends me. Now, offend here doesn't mean you don't like it. It doesn't even mean you think it's wrong. It means what they're doing will tempt you to do what you think is wrong. Are you with me? That what they're doing will lead you to sin. And he does say something here. You know, I don't come here very often, so if you don't want me back, I can be really honest with you. <laughs> what does he say? What, what, better not to eat meat or... Uh-oh, drink wine. Now, I don't know y'all that well, but my, I might guess that some of you think it's wrong to drink wine. I don't know. Okay, we'll pretend there's some here who think that. And there's some here who know it's not wrong to drink wine. Because we're strong. Ooh, it got silent. Isn't that good? <laughs> I finally got one you can really not fight over. So, uh, after lunch, we happen to see Deb and I, and we're out, and, and I'm, I'm drinking my wine. You can have different reactions. You can say, and he preached for us? Who was that? Who asked him to do that? <laughs> you can say, he can't be a Christian because the Bible's real clear on this. Now, I'm just telling you, I'm with Paul. Now, does that mean it's always a good thing to drink wine? Well, Paul says, no, there's certain situations where it's not good to drink wine. And that is, if I invite you to lunch, and I know you have trouble with the wine, either you're an alcoholic, or I know that it would be wrong for you to drink wine, then I probably shouldn't order it. Why? It might make you order it. It would be right for me and wrong for you. Can that be true? Paul says that's the way it is. See, for some, eating meat's wrong, because they think it's wrong. For some, drinking wine's wrong. So what does he say about all that? Don't do it if it causes another believer to stumble, to sin. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they decided is right. Don't harm other people with your freedom. 
Now, I think there's some implication here on the other side, too. If you think something's wrong, keep it between you and God. He's already said that, right? If you think something's wrong, don't judge your brother, your sister. Don't condemn them. And then the real key is in chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. He says, here's what it really means to be a Christian, a strong Christian. Don't we all be going to be strong Christians? We're strong enough to let other people have their way. You want to hear that again? We're strong enough to know what we're doing is right, but we're not going to insist on doing it our way. We're strong enough to let other people have their way. What if their way is not the best way? You know, my way is the best way. (laughs) You love them enough to let them have it their way. Well, what if they're wrong? Here's what he says. We who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about such things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. For even Christ didn't live to please himself. Okay, there really was someone who's right on everything. His name was Jesus. And yet, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus do? Jesus says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I didn't come to insist on my way. I came to what even give my life for others. So where does unity come from? It doesn't come from the attitude of I'm right and you're wrong. I know better than you are. I'm smarter than you are. I'm more mature than you are. I'm more spiritual than you are. It comes from the attitude of I want to do what's best for you. We want to do what's best for others. And then he says, and the whole purpose of this accepting one another, not condemning one another, in one sense, the whole purpose of this Christian unity is so we can praise God together. Be one in our praise to God from chapter 15, 5 through 7. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Jesus Christ. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. So we come here on Sunday. What do we do? You just did it. We just did it a few minutes ago. We praise God together. Now, if we start talking to each other enough, we'll find out that the people next to us are wrong about something. And they misunderstand the Bible in some way. And we may have strong disagreements with them over issues that are not unimportant, but they don't unite us. That's not what unites us. And yet when we come together, I didn't see, I think you're a faithful church. But I didn't see the policeman at the door saying, I want to know what you believe on these eight things before we can let you praise God. Right? We kind of invite everyone in here, don't we? To praise God together. Paul says that's what unity is all about. It's not about me having my way. You having your way. It's not even about me being right and you being wrong. It's not about us and them. It's about all of us giving praise to God. So if unity is not based on agreement. What's unity based on? I'm going to give you two answers. It's the same answer actually. Two ways. 
I'm not going to give it to you, actually. Paul will. Because before Paul even talks about this disagreement thing and how we may see things differently and don't condemn them and don't make it us and them, he says, here's what I'm really talking about. Chapter 13. Unity, not based on agreement. It's based on love. So he says, owe nothing to anyone except your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not covet. But these and other such commandments are summarized in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others. So love fulfills the requirements of God's law. I suggest to you that love is not real until the fire of disagreement tests it. Love is not real until the fire of disagreement tests that love. Now, I think you know what I'm talking about. Because we know this with our human relationships. Okay, I'm going out on a limb here. Any of you live in families? Okay. Husbands, wives, do you agree on everything? I hear a little bit of laughter and rumbling here. Okay. What makes you one? It's not that you agree on everything. You know what? He might just be wrong about certain things. Or her. What makes you one is love. All right. You have parents, don't you? You agree with your parents all the time? Come on, give me a no way, all right? It's not agreement that makes you one, right? It's love. Agree with your children? Your children write all the time? I, I, I hope not. Okay. We're God's family. And even though we may disagree, that's not what separates us. The only thing that can separate us is what? We lack love. The only thing that can separate us is we don't really trust the love of God. And that's why on the night in which he portrayed, Jesus prays that all who believe in him worldwide may be one so that the world may know, may believe in Jesus. And the world may know the love of God. What unites us is not agreement. It's love. Or to put it differently, in the early years of what we call our movement, this Christian movement, we had a motto. Because in that day, and it's still true, but it was particularly true back then, we tended to divide Christians over lists of what you believe, called creeds. We had a motto that said, no, what we're going to do, because we think it's what Jesus prayed for, is we're going to have no creed but Christ. What makes us one? You are my brother and sister in Christ. Doesn't mean you like me. Doesn't mean you are like me. Doesn't mean you agree with me all the time. You should. I'm right. Doesn't mean I agree with you all the time. I know I should. You're right. What makes us one is Christ. And so in a moment when we come to the table, keep in mind, that's not our table. It's the table that brings us together because it's Christ's table. Let's pray together. God of love, we do give you thanks. 
that you have made us one in Jesus. We pray, Father, you'll increase our trust in him. We pray, Father, you will live your love through your Holy Spirit in our hearts. And, Father, may we show that love to all who believe in you in order that all in the world may believe in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.